The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Truth Transforms. Join in for spiritually enlightening discussion and the practical application of new thought principles. Here's your host, Reverend Galen McDowell. Welcome to Truth Transforms. I'm your host, Galen McDowell. I'm the executive minister, senior assistant minister, and the director of the Johnny Coleman Institute at Christ Universal Temple in Chicago, Illinois, where the Reverend Dr. Derek B. Wells is the senior minister, and the Reverend Dr. Johnny Coleman is the founder. So we're going to have a good time today. I'm going to continue, do my second episode on the book Sea Time and Harvest by Neville Goddard. Sea Time and Harvest by Neville Goddard. And I know some people have uh, been looking for this book. I know Amazon has some people who reprinted it. The version I'm using is out of print from Devoris and Company, but I do know they integrated it, I believe, into the Neville Reader. So um, if you can't find it any other way, I believe the Neville Reader has it. But I did see some reprints on on Amazon and one of the CUT members also let me know that there were a few available. I didn't know it was out of print when I chose it. Well, the original print, but it's accessible. So my request is that you get the book and read along with me, because as you are developing your consciousness along with your library, you're expanding yourself. So today's lesson is called The Four Mighty Ones, The Four Mighty Ones. And it's based upon a few things, but it's primarily based upon a scripture that um, was based upon the fiery furnace story found in the book of Daniel, which is in chapter 3, verses 19 through, um, I'll just say, the story goes to chapter 3, verses 19 through 30, but I'm going to only read a part of it, all right? Now, it says... Starting on verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? 
They answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Some translations say son of God or sons of God, etc. All right, I'm going to stop right there. So let's get into it. The four mighty ones. Now, my version of the book is page 23. So he starts off by reading several scriptures. One is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. And the river went out of Eden to the garden, and from thence it was parted and became in, into four heads. Then Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 14, and everyone had four faces. And then Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, which I just read, and then a quote from Blake, four mighty ones are in every man. Now, he wrote, this is Neville Goddard, the four mighty ones constitute the selfhood of man or God in man. We're going to repeat that. The four mighty ones constitute the selfhood of man or God in man. There are four mighty ones in every man or person, but these four mighty ones are not four separate beings separated from the other as are the fingers of his hand. The four mighty ones are different aspects of his mind and differ from one another in function and character without being four separate selves inhabiting one man's body. Now, let me just stop here for a moment. When you're doing metaphysical Bible interpretation, one of the things that you have to recognize is that every character, every place or location, and even uh, objects symbolize something that's going on within your own inner being, within your own consciousness. This is important because this is the key to understanding the Bible's, the Bible metaphysically, how to get the inner symbolism out of the Bible. Numbers represent things. Names represent things. Places represent things. Again, objects represent things. You have to always recognize, okay, what is that symbolizing in my consciousness? Now, this is Neville Goddard's interpretation of this particular text. But I just want to make sure that you recognize whether you're reading his interpretation or something I would, you know, I'll write or wrote or, or preached about or a Charles Fillmore or Joe Goldsmith, uh, Emmett Fox or Joseph Murphy. They all have some underlying principles that are similar. And one of those underlying principles is we're always talking about how does this symbolize something within me? All right. Now, back to the book. All right. So he goes on to start talking about the power of the I am and what that symbolizes uh, from four Hebrew characters to make up what some people call the tetragrammaton, which talks about the I am that I am. He says, is revered as the symbol of creative power in man, I am. So these four mighty ways shows you how to get in contact how to utilize, how to express the I am, your own spiritual identity, not just God's identity, your identity, to express good in your life. Now, why is this important? Because it was revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he said to, to the, when Moses was speaking to God through the burning bush experience, you're telling me to go back to Egypt Say to the Pharaoh, 
let my people go. Who am I telling the people uh, who sent me? Who am I, in other words, who am I speaking on behalf of? If I'm the ambassador of you, if I'm your prophet, then who are you? And scripture basically said that through the burning bush, God said, I am that I am. Some translations will say, I am who I am. It's the same thing. I am that I am. Now you have to remember that the scripture also says that you are made in the image and after the likeness of God. So if God is I am, you are I am, individualized. God is I am universally. You are I am individualized. I want to make sure. In other words, you're not I am to the exclusion of someone else. I, I am I am. You are I am. The people you don't like are I am. The people you love are I am. The people of different races and places, I am. Why? Because I am is the spiritual identity of every human being, regardless of their awareness of it or not. The creative power in humanity is I am. God in you is I am. This is why when I first came to Christ Universal Temple, Johnny Coleman, the Reverend Dr. Johnny Coleman would emphasize so strongly, never put anything or never say anything negatively after I am, because you are claiming that as identity. So we don't say, you know, I am and then put something negative behind it or disempowering. Like, you know, even the word sorry, like I don't even use that with I am. I'll say I apologize. Anybody around me will know you'll never hear me use the words I'm sorry. You just heard it now, but just in general, no. You know, I won't say I am, you know, you know, whatever, you know, broke or, or sick or any of those things. I might say my uh, my body, my body might not be feeling well. My body needs some rest. Not I am tired. Two totally different things. It's, it's a psychological twist. And I know it might seem like it's splitting hairs, but you have to recognize that I am is your spiritual identity. Reverend Ike said it best. He said, I am is your first name. What you put after I am is your last name. So if you're going to say I am, say I am well, I am rich, I am peace, I am joy, I am love, I am good, whatever it is. I often have people look at me strangely, and Reverend Wells talked about this this past Sunday when I show up to places and people ask me how I'm doing. I say, I am excellent, and it throws people off. He was talking about how he said to uh, his eye doctor, I am awesome. And the doctor tried to change. Oh, so you're good. He's like, no, I am awesome. It's a big difference. Because when people can't see where you're coming from, then they'll try to belittle it or diminish it. Not intentionally because they're a hater. It's because unconsciously they can't even perceive a place to where you can say, 
even in the midst of your challenges and growth opportunities that are wonderfully called problems by human beings, that you're excellent, that you're awesome, that you're powerful, that you're strong, that you're complete. And I know there's a whole psychology around you have to be connected to to what's going on right now. You got to be connected to your feelings. And I'm not saying don't be connected to your feelings. I'm not saying don't be self-aware. I'm not saying any of that. I don't proclaim that which I don't want to experience. You do what you want to do. As far as me and my house, I'm going to serve the principal. So if you ask me how I'm doing, I am perfect, whole, and complete. Now, I'm working through some stuff. Now we can talk about the stuff. But let's get my I amness out of the way first. I just want to make sure that we, we differentiate that because we're too loose, in my opinion, with the usage of I am. Now, anything you mentally associate yourself with, you're also saying I am that. So if you pick up some negative, destructive um, uh, belief that isn't consistent with your spiritual wholeness, that's not the true about God or true about you, yet you believe it, you're saying, I am that. I, just want, I really want you to get it. So even when you don't use the word I am, but you associate or you claim something that has to do with your race or gender or orientation or any or uh, uh, or nationality or, uh, you know, financial uh, level in life. Be careful of the labels you put on yourself. My primary label in my mind is I am a spiritual being living in a spiritual universe governed by spiritual law. That's my identity. What's yours? Now, does that change that biologically, physically, that I'm an African uh, American male? No. I know that. I can look in the mirror. All right. I know that I've been on the earth a certain amount of years. I know that. It doesn't change any of those. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that I'm ignoring any of those facts. What I'm saying is, what do I primarily associate myself with? What is the primary thing? Because if I proclaim spirit, then I am also accepting that which goes along with spirit. I really want you to get it. This is a psychological twist now. Because we get caught up and we identify with everything before our spiritual nature because we're mesmerized by the five senses. We're mesmerized by uh, the sense of worldly identity. We're mesmerized by the stuff we have. We're mesmerized by the stuff we want to get. And we never go back to, I'm already perfect, whole, and complete because I am that I am. I am a spiritual being living in a spiritual universe governed by spiritual law. That's who I am. That's my spiritual nature. 
That's the truth about me. The kingdom of God is within me. I am the temple of the living God and the spirit of God dwells in me. That's the truth about me. God is spirit. I am spirit. God is love. I am love. God is wisdom. I am wisdom. I don't care how foolish I might be acting right now. I really want you to get that. It doesn't matter how foolish I might be acting right now. I am wisdom. Why? Because I am the image and likeness of God. And if God is wisdom, I am wisdom. And if it's true about God, it's true about me, regardless of my current circumstances, regardless of what I'm going through right now. It's the discovery. See, and, and I got to get to these four altars because I haven't even gotten that far yet. But but I'm about to get there in a moment. But now I'm in, in a flow. We have to recognize that there's something radically right about you. There's something radically right about us. There's something radically right about me. I'm not just my experiences. I have experiences. I'm not my experiences. I can transcend my experiences. I can overcome my experiences. I can make my experiences disappear and come back as something different. But to do that, you have to believe you have the power to do it. And you're not waiting for some God up there somewhere to show you some favor for it to happen. I really want you to get it. I really want you to get it because when you understand how it works, you uh, will understand it works if, if, if you work it. It works if you work it. God is not going to work it if you don't work. The principle works if you work the principle. That's what I want you to get. I'm going to read this scripture for you really fast. Because this is really, really, really good. Um, okay. This is uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And then we're going to get to these four uh, mighty ones. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall be successful. Now, let me just stop here for a second. Now, the scripture has some other stuff. I hereby command you be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, now let's go back to verse eight. Now, verse nine. This book of the law. Now, I want you to just think about God as universal law. So this universal law, these, this spiritual principle shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, stop talking about stuff that is not validate and lift up the wholeness of God in you. You shall meditate on it day and night. In other words, this is what should be sitting on your heart. 
This is what should be occupying your thoughts. You have to be consistent with your conditioning. That's what these two first steps are conditioning tools. Speak truth, meditate day and night on truth. And meditate does not always mean just being sitting still, which it also does mean that, but it's also saying contemplate on this truth. Meditate on it day and night. And the Apostle Paul would say, pray without ceasing. So that you may be careful. In other words, there's a divine order to things. So that you may be careful to what? Act in accordance with all that is written in it. Now, I'm going to tell you that the true book of the law is written within your own being, in your own I am nature. So are you moving in alignment with the spiritual truth or are you allowing the world to impact how you think, how you feel, how you believe, what you believe, how you speak and what you do? Now, notice this. He says, if you do all of those things, if you don't allow the book of the law to depart from your mouth, if you meditate on it day and night, if you act in accordance with all that is written in it, then is God going to do something for you? That's not what it says. It says, for then shall, for then you shall make your way prosperous. No, no, no. Not, God is not making my way prosperous. No, no, no. For then you shall make your way prosperous. And then you shall be successful. Why? Because you're already in alignment with the truth. It didn't say if you do all these things, you can sit back and God's going to make it work. No, it says for then you shall make your way prosperous because you are in the flow, because you're in alignment, because you understand your truth. For then you shall make your way prosperous. And then you shall be strong. I mean, successful. But strong still works. I really want you to get this. So we have to get past these fears, these doubts, these anxieties. That's where it says, I hereby command you, be strong. Be strong. Not just act strong. Notice the difference. Be strong and courageous. Don't act courageous. Be courageous. Embody it. Make it, It's your beingness. Do not be frightened or dismayed. Because di when you're dismayed, there's some confusion that goes along with being dismayed. Like, man, what's going on, God? For the Lord, your God, for the I am, your God, for the universal law, your God, for the divine law, your God, for the creative power within you, your God is with you wherever you go. Really want that to land. So back to the book, man, that took a long way to get all the way back there. So Neville wrote. We can best understand understand the four mighty ones by comparing them to the four most important characters in the production of a play. The producer, the author, the director, and the actor are the four, four most important characters in the production of a play. You want the four mighty ones. He's explaining them. 
the producer, the author, the director, and the actor. We're talking about aspects with, of your own being, not anything outside. We're not talking, he's using the analogy of a play to explain a principle. Within you, there's a producer, an author, a director, and an actor. All right? All right. They all have different functions. He wrote, in the drama of life, the producer's function is to suggest the theme of a play. This he does in the form of a wish, such as, I wish I could, I were successful. I wish I could take a trip. I wish I were married, and so on. But to appear on the world stage, these general themes must somehow be specified and worked out in detail. It's not enough to say, I wish I were successful. That is too vague. Successful at what? However, the first mighty one only suggests a theme. The dramatization of the theme is left to the originality of the second mighty one, the author. In dramatizing the theme, the author writes only the last scene of the play. But this scene he writes in detail. The scene must dramatize the wish fulfilled. He mentally constructs a lifelike scene, a excuse me, as lifelike a scene as possible of what he would experience had he realized his wish. When the scene is clearly visualized, the author's work is done. So, in other words, I want to make sure you understand the producer is choosing this is what I want. But it's still vague, but you're clear. This is what I want to produce. This is what I desire. This is what I'm this is what I want to manifest. But that's still vague. What the author does of your mind, the author in you, is to take that general concept, that general want or desire or wish, and formulates it into a mental picture, but not the whole process. Only the end result that is complete based upon how you desire it to end. Don't miss that. What the author is doing is going to the end. The author is only seeing from the end, from completion, from the desired result. As clearly as possible in the mind. I don't want you to miss this. This is gold right here. Because it's not asking you to think from point of origin all the way to the end. The author's job is to only see the completion. I'm looking at the time and it looks like we got to take this break. So let me um, address that by saying uh, we got to take a break, which is about three and a half minutes come back with book in hand or your in your ears open because we're about to dissect this text we'll be right back with truth transforms we are spiritual beings having a human experience This is UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Truth Transforms with your host, Reverend Galen McDowell. Welcome back to Truth Transforms. 
Before we get back into the book, Seed Time and Harvest and the Four Mighty Ones, let me just do this quick commercial. You can tune in to Christ Universal Temple Sunday morning service, which is 1030 a.m. Central Time on our Facebook page, which is Christ Universal Temple. Our YouTube page, CU Temple, CU and the word temple together, or our website, www.cutemple.org. So just be mindful of that. You definitely want to make sure you're getting those good lessons. Also, be mindful that we teach noonday lessons on Facebook, on our Facebook page, Christ Universal Temple, based upon Reverend Wells' book, Live Happy. So if you don't catch it live at noon central time, you can always go back and listen to the lessons later. It's always available for you. I also want to remind you that this show has archives. You can always go back to unityonlineradio.org or through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever app you use, Spotify, Stitcher, to listen to episodes that go back now almost 10 years. Next month will be my 10th straight year teaching on Truth Transforms. So right now, as far as I know, I'm the longest uh, continuous podcast on Unity Online Radio. So um, I'm really proud of that because that means that, that a lot of people have been helped all around the world because of the work that we are doing at Unity Online Radio. I'm very proud of that work. So let's get back to it. Oh, one more thing. The You Can Have It All 2022 conference that we did virtually, Christ Universal Temple, uh, in last month in January is going to live stream on our YouTube and Facebook page this Saturday. So make sure you get an opportunity. It's the You Can Have It All 2022 conference. It's the post-burning bowl conference that we have now, the second year in a row. You can hear me, Reverend Wells, Reverend Sherry James, Reverend Sheree Thompson, uh, Reverend Jacqueline uh, Trich Atkins, trying to remember Reverend Roderick Norton, Attorney Gavin Jackson. We're always teaching different subjects. So give yourself an opportunity to get that blessing. All right, now let's get back to the book. Now, we've covered the the producer and the author, but now it's time to go to the third mighty one, which is the director. The third mighty one in the production of life's play is the director. The director's tasks are to see that the actor remains faithful to the script and to rehearse him over and over again until he is natural in the part. This function may be likened to a controlled and consciously directed attention. An attention focused exclusively on the action, which implies that the wish is already realized. So what the director is doing is taking the end that that the author wrote. Now remember, the producer makes the desire, the wish, or the theme. The author writes the end. The director plays it over and over in your mind, in your imagination, until it becomes solidified in an aspect of your being. So in other words, it becomes it becomes you. It becomes just as real as any physical experience. That and you're not walking up to complete it. You're only rehearsing the completion as you desire it. You're seeing yourself already healed. You're seeing yourself already with the money, already with the business, already with the job. You're seeing yourself already with the house. You're walking in the house. You're cooking in the kitchen. You're barbecuing in the in the yard. 
you're experiencing it. You're driving the car. You're pulling up in your garage. You're pulling up into your work parking lot. You're experiencing it. The fourth, now it's time to talk about the fourth man, the fourth mighty one. The form of the fourth is like the son of God, human imagination, the actor. The fourth mighty one performs within himself in imagination the predetermined action which implies the fulfillment of the wish. In other words, the fourth one, like unto a son of God, or as the New Revised Standard said, like unto a God, is the power of you, of the Christ in you, which Neville used the term imagination to produce the results. To produce the results. He says, this function does not visualize or observe the action. This function actually enacts the drama and does it over and over again until it takes on the tones of reality. So I really want you to get it. So as you're playing, so as you're rehearsing it over and over in mind, rehearsing it over and over in mind, your imagination uh, takes it and starts to form it and shape it into something. Charles Fillmore said that faith is the substance of, excuse me, the perceiving power of the mind linked with the power to shape substance. That's linked to something. What is it linked to? Imagination. Because imagination is the power to form and shape thought. All right. So he goes on to write. Without the dramatized vision of fulfilled desire, the theme remains a mere theme and sleeps forever in the vast chambers of unborn themes. In other words, you think something, you want something, you, but you never achieve it. It says, nor without the cooperative attention, obedient to the dramatized vision of fulfilled desire, will the vision perceive attained objective reality. In other words, you have to consistently, at the same time, hold the theme, hold the end result, rehearse it until you can set it down and give it to God in you. And I give it to God as somewhere by and by. In other words, you're one with the universal principle that we call God or spirit. You're, again, you're an individualized expression of it. So he goes on to write, Neville wrote, these four mighty ones are the four quarters of the human soul. The first is Jehovah's king who suggests theme. The second is Jehovah's servant who faithfully works out the theme in a dramatic vision. The third is Jehovah's man who is attentive and obedient to the vision of fulfilled desire who brings the wandering imagination back to the script 70 times seven. The form of the fourth is Jehovah himself who enacts the dramatized theme on the stage of the mind. He's giving you different ways of looking at this. But by the time you get to the fourth mighty one, that's the power to accomplish it. But if you're not faith, if you're not faithful to the theme, but you know, that the producer made, that the actor wrote, the end result of, by rehearsing it over and over in your mind, you can't get the result. In other words, 
you get to the place to where there's a realization. I'm trying to make sure you get this, that there's a knowing. And then you can release it and allow divine law to do its perfect work. And I know that that might be challenging for some folks to let divine law do its perfect work. I never forget when I first started working at Christ Universal Temple, the very first week I had a conversation with one of my spiritual mothers, the Reverend Evelyn Boyd. And, uh, you know, she and I are very close. And she was, I was saying something about something that I didn't agree with. I don't remember what it was offhand, but I remember the words she said to me in response. She said, Reverend Coleman, no, she didn't say Reverend Coleman, she said Johnny. She said, Johnny trusts divine law to handle it. Mm. So action is sometimes outer action that's spiritually guided or should be spiritually guided. Sometimes the action is solely going through and working with these four mighty ones in your mind and letting divine law Handle it. Now, I'm not the one to say this is when you should only hold something in mind and take no action or not. What I would say is work with these four mighty ones and act as if. But I don't have to live out your manifestation, so I can't tell you or I don't have to live with your results. What I can do is teach it to you. As uh, my brother, Dr. Rocco Errico used to say, it's not my job or it's not a minister's job to convince, convert, or coerce anyone. It is our job to present the truth and we let God handle the rest. Now, back to the book. He quotes the scripture from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So he goes on to say, the drama of life is a joint effort of the four quarters of the human soul. Now, what I want you to get is this process doesn't just work when you want good stuff. This process is always working. Divine law does not turn off. Divine law does not go to sleep. Every time you have a theme in your mind, every time you're playing out an end result, Every time you're repeating something over and over in your mind, you're telling divine law, produce this for me. It has nothing to do with good, bad, or indifferent. It's the law. It's the law. This is why Johnny Coleman would say, I am the thinker that thinks the thought that makes the thing. It's the law. Now, Neville goes on to write. All that we behold is a visual construction contrived to express a theme, a theme which has been dramatized, rehearsed, and performed elsewhere. In other words, if we're seeing it out here, all of that has happened before it manifested. What we are witnessing on the stage of the world is an optical construction devised to express the themes which have been dramatized, rehearsed, and performed 
in the imaginations of men. Oh, man, that's great. He's saying that what we see in life is an outpicturing of consciousness. That's it. Why? Galatians 6, 7 tells us God is not mocked. Whatever a man souls, that's mental, not just action. Whatever a man souls, so shall he reap. All right. He goes on to write. These four, four mighty ones constitute the selfhood of man or God in man. And all that man beholds, though it appears without, are but shadows cast upon the screen of space, optical constructions contrived by selfhood to inform him in regard to the themes which he has conceived, dramatized, rehearsed, and performed within himself. In other words, what you see is a result. What you see is an effect that's only giving you feedback concerning what you've been thinking, what you believe, what you really feel, what you've been saying, and what you've been doing. But all of those things, when you track them all the way back to the origin, it always ends up back at thought. Because if you feel it, what's that feeling based upon? Something you've imaged, something you've thought, something you've believed. If you're saying it, why are you saying it? It's something within you that is connected to it, some belief, some feeling, which goes back to a thought, an image, a concept, an idea. What you do is connected to some belief, some feeling, some thought, some image, some concept some ideology, some idea. But you say the same thing. The world is just giving us magnificent feedback and giving us the opportunity to say, if you don't like what you see, change what you're thinking. Go back to the producer change the theme then go to the actor create the desired end result I'm assuming not the actor the author then go to the director and play with it in your mind until you know your lines you know where you're supposed to be standing you know what you're supposed to be doing you know where you're supposed to be looking you're rehearsing the desired results over and over again. Over and over again. So the divine law can take that and run with it. All right. He wrote, the creature was made subject unto vanity. That's a quote, and that that he may become conscious of selfhood and his functions. For with the consciousness of selfhood and his functions, he can act, he can act to a purpose. He can have a consciously 
self-determined history. Now, that's what I really wanted you to get. Consciously self-determined history. Without such consciousness, he acts unconsciously and cries to a, an objective God to save him from his own creation. In other words, we don't realize we're creating, so we pray to a God outside of ourselves to change our experiences without a change of consciousness. He quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou will not hear, even cry even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou will not save. He's basically saying, when we get to this place, oh, God, what's going on? What's happening? Save me. Do this, do that, etc. And we're wondering why God isn't fixing stuff. Because the process begins with the producer. Change the thing. Then the author. Create the desired end result. Then the director. Rehearse in your mind over and over again the desired ending. So the universal law can take that and produce and create it. I want to use producer again and create that experience as an objective reality. So Neville goes on to write, when man discovers that life is a play which he himself is consciously or unconsciously writing, he will cease from the blind self-torture of executive judgment upon others. Instead, he will rewrite the play to conform to his ideal, for he will realize that all changes in the play must come from the cooperation of the four mighty ones within himself. They alone can alter the script and produce the change. In other words, you stop fighting life and you go back to start working on yourself. Stop having all these judgments about what people are doing and not doing and start working on yourself. He goes on to write, all the men and women in his world are merely players and are as helpless to, the cha to change his play as are the players on the screen of a theater to change the picture. Uh, Emmett Fox wrote this, a beautiful analogy about this. He talked about how when the movie projectors were originally taken to the wild, wild west, they would project the movies onto a barn, like a side of a, a, a wall of a barn. So the people could see, the cowboys could see the movies. But when the bad guy would beat up the good guy, sometimes the cowboys would take out their guns and start shooting at the barn. Now, no matter how many times they shot the barn, it did not affect what was being projected because the projector determined what was being projector, projected, not the barn. You want to stop what's being projected, you got to go back to your mind. We're trying to change people. Change your mind. And people who are in alignment with what you do and how you get down will be drawn, and people who are not will be repelled. Now, you can cause a lot of drama by trying to hold on to what's being repelled. Or, well, I'll just leave that at that. All right. So he goes on to say the desired change must be conceived, dramatized, rehearsed and performed in the theater of his mind. I want you to start to think of your mind like a theater. At the theater, the theater is the end result of the producer, the author and the director. 
By the time it gets to the theater, you're watching it happen. That's the end game. The theater of your mind. He says, when the fourth function, the imagination, has completed its task of rehearsing the revised version of the play until it is natural, then the curtain will rise upon this so seemingly solid world and the mighty four will cast a shadow of the real play upon the screen of life. In other words, when you finish doing what you need to do in your imagination, then he says the curtain will the curtain will roll. In other words, back it will rise. Back in the day, you know, the uh, theaters had curtains where the curtains would open up to show the the, the movie theater. And you don't see that now in movie uh, uh, theaters anymore. But back then, even when I was a kid, I can remember curtains going back, being pulled back to be able to see the movie. Well. Every moment of your life, the curtain is being pulled back, showing you something that you produce through the four mighty ones. Back to the book. He wrote, men and women will automatically play their part to bring about the fulfillment of the dramatized theme. In other words, you'll draw people to you. That's in alignment and correspondence to it. Why? Because we're all one. He wrote, I am involved in mankind. We are one. We are all playing the four parts of producer, author, director, and actor in the drama of life. So people are drawing you into their into their uh, four mighty ones, and you're drawing people into yours. Then he has this quote. I love this quote from Angelus Silesius. Man should not stay a man. His aim should be his aim should higher be. Let me start over. Man should not be a man. His aim should higher be. For God will only gods accept his company. Oh, I love that. Okay. Then he talks about a story in January 1946, how he took his wife and children to Barbados, because that's where he was from, but he needed to get back on a boat to uh, get back because, uh, in by the first week of May. And he was being told he wouldn't be able to get back until sometime before September. No ships available. So what did he do? He went out into his imagination. He saw himself, the whole process of him and his family getting on the boat. The whole process, detail by detail. Okay. In his imagination, he just sat in his easy chair in the hotel and just went through his mind, walking on the deck, uh, looking back, seeing Barbados in the background, you know, basically feeling the wind and, and you know, being feeling nostalgic because, he, you know, he was leaving home. And even though there were no tickets available, he got a call at the hotel for he and his family to get on a boat and he made it back to New York by the 1st of May. He created that in his mind. You can do it too. So he gives the example. He says, as the producer, I decided to sail on a specific ship at a certain time. You get that? Playing the part of the author, I wrote the script. I visualized the interaction which conformed to the outer action I would 
take if my desire were realized. As the director, I rehearse myself, the actor in that in that imagined action of climbing the gangplank until the action felt completely natural. This being done, events and people move swiftly to conform in the outer world to the play I had constructed and enacted in my imagination. I really want you to get this now. And then he tells another wonderful story that you'll have to read yourself because I don't have time to read it of a lady who used her imagination for a fantastic result. The point I want to get through to you is these four mighty ones are always working. Make sure that you're producing the results you desire. So next week, when we cover the gift of faith, so hopefully you have the book, The Gift of Faith, we're going to drill down because we're working and learning how to tap at a higher level into the power within us to produce the desired results, our own desired results. What is it that you really want to experience and produce in your life? We're going to take it and run it through the process of the four mighty ones. I don't want you to miss that. We're going to take it through the process of the four mighty ones, and we're going to just build on it and build, build on it. But Neville just gave you, and I just gave you, Neville and I, I'm going to say, because I, I added to some things to what Neville wrote here, the secret to manifestation. So if you ever had doubts about how it works, now you understand. We're going to make this stuff work. Let's get to it. Let's get to work. Let's get these results. Let's demonstrate the God that resides within us. God bless you, and I'll be with you next week with Truth Transform. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.